Hello world. Hey. Hi. Hi. Hello. Hi. Hi. Hello. Hello. Hi. It's like I forgot not to say hello. <laughs> Hi, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Life with Kaka, the show where producers have candid conversations about the messy parts of life. I'm your host and fellow producer, Carolina Gropa. The world is a bit scary right now, so how are you doing? How are you feeding your soul? You know, normally we try to take life one moment at a time. However, recently it feels more like one breath at a time. No matter what you're feeling during this uncertain time, please know that it's okay. I'm here for you. I got you. And we will all get through this together. Cool? This week on the show, I sat down with Rachel Sussman. She is a Tony-nominated theater producer who also happens to currently be in quarantine with her BFF, the marvelous Miss Maisel herself, Rachel Brosnahan. She is a delight of a human who radiates positivity and believes in hope. She is exactly what the show and I needed this week. Please forgive the audio quality of this week's episode. Rachel was actually in New York and we recorded remotely using Zencaster. Also, I realized I was not recording my side of the conversation for the first minute. So that's why you hear Rachel talking and no response from me. <laughs> Life with Kaka, I tell you. So without further ado, let's dig in and hear from Rachel. Yeah, hi. <laughs> global pandemic to make it really happen, but we did it. Yeah, it's pretty dark here. Um, I would say, uh, you know, we sort of started practicing social distancing. It happened so quickly. Like when it did, it was immediate. Like within 24 hours, most of the folks I work with in my industry are out of work now. Because um, Broadway shut down on Thursday. Um and now there, there was like an official mandate um, uh, from Mayor de Blasio that all of the restaurants and like any other gatherings are going to cease, although they're still allowing deliveries, food, et cetera, but it's like leaving it on the porch. But it's just like you're sort of forced into a yeah. quarantine period. And I think the responsible thing to do is to go into quarantine and practice social distancing. So we have been doing that. I've been uptown mm -hmm. sort of in my home for four days. <laughs> yeah. So it's been a little, it's been strange, but also I feel, um, you know, from the ashes <laughs> comes the phoenix yes. or whatever. Um, <laughs> so I think that hopefully this will create more compassion and will help us all realize how interconnected we really yeah. are. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting. It's, it's tricky to not, you know, I have a lot of friends who obviously are freelancers or work in industries that are severely impacted by this and don't have a safety net really do live pay paycheck to paycheck. So I know that for them, this is a really scary time. And some people do have, you know, the, the luxury or the, the the sort of comfort of knowing that financially, at least they're going to be okay for a little while and they can lean in more to like taking this time for self-care and creativity. And so 100%. if you're listening and you're one of the freelancers I mentioned who is affected by this, you're, you're not alone. I, I have a couple of other friends who are, you know, all working to find solutions and ways to support one another during this time because it's uncertain how long it will last. Um, and so, you know, definitely important for me and for everyone listening to know that like we are super aware and if there's anything I can do to support and my community, we're, we're here to do that. So with that said, uh, thank you again for um, making this happen during a global pandemic. Oh, um, and also I, I want to <laughs> say, you know, I'm working specifically on some artist relief efforts for freelancers in those economy. Mm. Um, and great. one of, there's a, a really great resource list going around. Which yeah. I don't know if you have it, um, but I'm happy to send it to you. And it's COVID-19 freelance artist resource wordpress.com. And it's just, it's been collating sort of like all the various efforts that are going on. And it's, this is a little more specific to folks in the arts, but um, a mm. lot of the folks who work, work in the arts also work in a lot of other industries as supplemental. Um, yeah. So 
Um, I, I strongly encourage folks who are feeling stressed um, and anxious to look at this list and and find various forms of relief yes. on there. Absolutely. Well, on that note, let's talk about something really positive and amazing, which is you. Oh. <laughs> um I'm I'm so grateful we we connected. Um, I don't even remember how I found you, but somehow I found you last summer, and I found you guys were I think in the middle of previews, or maybe was it already on Broadway with what the Constitution means to me? Yes, I think that we were. Um, I think we were in previews. I don't know if we'd even officially opened. Um, was it last fall or last spring? I remember the first time you messaged me. Yeah. <laughs> and it's taken us um, almost a year, I think, to actually yeah, happen, but. Um, but yeah, now Constitution, I mean, is is sort of become a really exciting, not only piece of theater, but I think response uh, and call to action. And we were a successful show, not only artistically, but financially on Broadway. And now we're- Congrats. Wow. Thank you so much. Yeah, you guys just had the LA run just close and, and uh, would be going to San Francisco, I think, next wing of it but I think it obviously is postponed but I did get to catch it while it was here in LA a few weeks ago and I I was completely blown away I've never seen a piece of theater that was like this you know where it was so interactive and but still you're still in the world and the characters break the fourth wall but in a very unique way and I felt like it was extremely effective to include the audience and the way that Heidi built this world Kudos to you guys and the team because I I think it's an important piece of theater that everyone needs to see. Oh, thank you. for sure. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's sort of my my mission as a theater producer is to try and and help share works and give them a platform that feel like they um, not only have something to say but are sort of challenging status quo mm-hmm. and 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 forcing people to sort of. Um, perhaps encounter a, a new way of thinking and um, and to do that through art, which, you know, promotes empathy and compassion. And um, this is certainly the kind of show that you leave and you don't immediately go, so what's for dinner? <laughs> you Right. <laughs> and, and the themes and what Heidi's really saying about um, our constitution and and the the plot of the show just as an overview is when she was 15 she was on a debate team where they would debate on uh various constitutional amendments and concepts and she was obsessed with the constitution as a teenager and now she's a 40 something woman living in the world and um has a different relationship to the constitution so she's sort of like reconciling her once love for this, how she feels now, which is a very complicated view of this document, which has um, has been written and, and done its job of promoting um, those in privilege and those in power um, and uh, really not necessarily taking care of the most marginalized in, the, in this sort of systemic world. Yeah. And I also, what I loved about it is the way that they made the constitution so accessible the writing, the actors, to, to really take these concepts that are so stuffy in many ways, you know, like we've all sort of know of the Constitution, know the Bill of Rights, have read the Constitution, but I don't think, I, I can only speak for myself, especially being an immigrant and not, you know, not having grown up with 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 that as a big um, template, essentially, and, and temple of my values, I choose to be an American, you know, and I find that really interesting. They they gave us uh, a copy of the Constitution. It was a partnership with the ACLU, which I thought was really brilliant for us to like a pocket Constitution for you to peruse and read and understand how much there is for interpretation and how much there is to still understand about this document that, you know, our, our, our country's founded upon. And everything you said, you hit it on the nose. And I I, I hope that when our world is back up and running, that everyone listening, if if the show is playing near you, that you please go check it out. And if you do hit us up, like I would love to know, I'm sure Rachel would as well, love to know your thoughts, what your takeaways were. That is the power of art to give us a, a safe place, right? To experience things that otherwise would be a little scary or daunting or a bit aggressive, perhaps. And I, I, I just think you guys really walked the line of doing that extremely well, you know, and and really putting planting these seeds of ideas and thoughts and letting us kind of just 
marinate on that and go, whoa, I never had thought of that that way, you know? And I think that's at its best to me, that's what art does. And to me, I think you succeeded. So, so kudos again. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. But so to back it up, I just want to take it to the beginning with a little bit of your backstory, how you discovered producing. Yeah. So I, um, I grew up in Metro Detroit. Um, I went to public school there. I had a really extraordinary, um, like performing arts company at my high school and I was very actively involved. I got really into theater, um, nice in the youth repertory company when I was in elementary school. Um, and I loved musicals like Les Mis and Cats and Annie and Sound of Music, sort of like yeah. all really big classics. And I also was a dancer as a kid. Um, nice. And I sort of, I sort of committed myself wholeheartedly to the theater, and I just loved everything about it, like mm. from the history to the to the actual production on stage and being an actor. Um, so I really got into theater more so as an actor because as a young person, you're sort of taught there's on stage and there's off stage, and off stage is generally running crew and mm-hmm. wearing black and you're moving scenery around. And I wasn't super interested in that. And I loved being the center of attention as a kid. <laughs> so I really got into theater and, and wanted to pursue it as a career. I went to NYU to school of the arts um, in their drama department. And um, my big pitch to my parents for why I should go to NYU and then very grateful that I had the opportunity to do it because it is a private university and they don't offer a lot of um, mm-hmm. funding. Uh, I I told my parents I was going to intern every single semester and I was going to network, even though I didn't quite know what that <laughs> meant, but it felt like a ugly thing. And my parents were so impressed by my plans. They were like, wow, you've convinced us. You should definitely go. So I did intern every semester and my um, sophomore year, I was interning for this major nonprofit theater in New York. It's called Second Stage Theater. And I got to be a part of a uh, developmental process, sort of like a fly on the wall as they were creating a brand new piece of theater. And I just had this epiphany during that time of, oh my gosh, I want to I want to be a part of making the thing. And my experience thus far as an actor had been you come into the process a little later once everything is sort of like set into motion mm-hmm. and you help bring it to life. But I wanted to be there from the very beginning. And I realized that that was much more the job of a producer and specifically a creative producer to sort of um, put the pieces into place and create strategy and timeline and work with the the artists as well as sort of like a production team to manage everything and keep it moving forward. Yeah. Was there any during your time at NYU specifically did was there ever any focus throughout the four years on producing? Well, I was in an acting studio. I don't know how familiar yeah, you are, Tish, but right? NYU has Yeah, yeah. Yes. So Tish draws a couple different kinds of um there are different acting studios which study different techniques and you are it's sort of like the sorting hat from Harry mm-hmm. Potter. You're sort of one, but in your audition and interview, you can have a preference and they try and give you one of your three preferences. So I started in a program at the Strasbourg Institute, which is a Stanislavski-based method. Um, it's called method acting. It's it's psychologically based. And I did that for two years. And, and it was sort of like, you know, that sophomore year was when I was starting to really shift my focus from wanting to perform to wanting to produce. At NYU, in your junior year, you can actually transfer into another studio if you want. So I moved into the experimental theater wing, which was basically the opposite end of the spectrum because the focus was so much on physicality and on mm. out of your head. And they, I mean, most of my friends ended up in the experimental theater wing because it was so flexible and it was sort of about stretching yourself, not only as an artist and a creator, but as a human being. And it really taught yeah. me lessons for life. Oh, yeah, I think everyone should do experimental theater or improv oh. or, or anything that gets you in your body just as a human. I think it's it just makes you better at whatever it is that you do. I wish that was mandated. <laughs> I know. Well, and, and I was, you know, 
when you're 18, 19, 20, you're still like pretty self-conscious and trying to figure out who you are. And then I got to be in a program where they kept saying who you are is exactly right. And don't try and make yourself someone else, but rather like convince people to love you the way you are. Um, I love that. Huge Eureka thing as like a 20 year old. So um, I was also lucky because the experimental theater wing did these independent projects. So every senior had to sort of create their own piece of theater and, and they would cast the other students. And I, instead of doing that, asked the head of the studio if I could produce someone else's show and that could be my independent project. And because they're sort of in the world of yes and, and trying to sort of support all of these experimental ideas, they totally said, go for it. So I I got to produce a show my senior year at NYU. And I was also producing a bunch of concerts and continuing to intern um, outside of school as well. Well, and how was it producing your first show? Looking back, what you thought producing was versus what it's now, you know, become for you. What was that experience like? I mean, it was so like looking back on it, I my heart goes out to like young me because I was I put myself in charge of the fundraising. And, you know, that was a time where uh, crowdfunding was starting to be a really big thing. So I had to raise what felt like a, re- a really um, large amount of money, but it was like a thousand dollars. But I you know that was on me. That was my job. But it's a big deal when you haven't, when you're going from zero, a thousand is a big jump. Totally. And I thus far yeah. working with, you know, the concerts and the other events I'd put on had come with infrastructure and support. So my job was to sort of use existing money and, and make sure people got paid and, and rentals and resources were available. But this was the first time that other people, artists turned to me and they were like, well, we need to raise this money or we can't do this show. And Mm. I ended up putting together a a crowdfunding campaign. I think it was a Kickstarter for this piece. And I was a a nanny that was sort of that got me through school. And I was talking to the, the family about the show that I was producing and how excited I was. And they ended up just sort of writing me a check on the spot. <laughs> they were like, well, oh, my God, want you to like be successful and we'll be your first investor. And it was so sweet. And it, it wasn't for the full 1000, but it was certainly like a large chunk. And and I thought, oh, wow, I, I can actually do this. I think that is so amazing. I had a somewhat similar sort of start to my producing career where I was a nanny as well for a family. And I produced the very first thing I ever produced was a stage play. Didn't know what I was doing. And I ended up fundraising in a different way. But I had a very similar thing where the people that I was nannying for, they were like, because I had also been acting and producing was a jump into creating opportunities for myself as an actor. And they were like, how do we support you to do this? Because you should be doing this producing thing because you're really good at this. Not that the acting isn't good, but that not a lot of people can do this, which is to just show up and create something out of nothing and have it be pretty successful, especially considering it was my first time. And it was a real a pivot sort of big turning point for me in my own perspective of the identity that I had formed for myself as an artist and thinking that that was the only path to seeing, oh, similar to what you were saying, like, if I want to be more involved from the jump, which looking back makes total sense. I'm such a, I thrive being in control professionally, you know, I love being a person who gets to put it all together. And that had been me my whole life. I was always the girl in the class group project who ended up doing everything to everyone's annoyance probably. But like, I just loved getting things done and and multitasking, having that be validated when I had always spent so much time over here thinking that was the only way to have a creative career, right? It was really interesting uh, shift that took a few years, honestly, for me to be like, is this, is this what I want to do then? Is this the path? Because prior to that experience, I I didn't really know producing existed. I didn't know what that was. Like I knew projects came together, but I couldn't tell you how, how that happened, which is why I was curious if at any point at NYU, there was like a elective or a seminar or something where somebody was brought in from the outside to tell actors like how this world gets created beyond just the craft that they bring to it. Yeah. That, that, that doesn't really happen very much, which I, which is kind of curious. It doesn't. I mean, I took a producing off Broadway course, which sort of focused on the history 
of off-Broadway theaters and how like the movement for regional theaters. Um, and there really isn't an opportunity and, and to this day there aren't, um, which is a, a separate sort of entrepreneurial effort I have with a few yeah. producing friends to actually try and democratize the knowledge around producing in the theater because um, I think, you know, like so many industries, it's created this power dynamic where folks assume that producers are in charge and they hold all this knowledge and, and that withholding sort of distorts the reality. So um, mm -hmm. we're really trying to work to teach artists who probably don't actually want to be producers just what the role of a producer is because it is so nebulous and it has yes. really been clearly defined. I mean, I'm sure your definition of it is different than mine. It's different from anyone else's. So really trying to um, pull back the iron curtain and um, give artists the knowledge that they need so that they can be better so that we can all be better collaborators together. That is like a thousand percent my aim with this podcast is it's I don't you know the show is yes it's for budding producers but it's also for anyone who wants to understand what all the different types of producers do and also that it's so much is about the journey right like you can talk to two film producers or television producers or theater producers and they're gonna have vastly different perspectives and uh, descriptions of what their job title is. It's kind of amorphous. It's always evolving, I find. But there are some core uh, ten poles, I would say, of it. Which brings me to my next question. Mm -hmm. You know, how would you define producing? Sure. I mean, the way that I really think of it is every show, at least in the theater, every show is its own startup. And you are like the CEO. Um, mm -hmm. So you're really responsible for managing, for, for hiring all of the folks, like your general manager in the theater sort of operates like a CFO. Um, and then you have your whole artistic team and there's, and they're sort of operating like to create the actual work and content. Um, and you have to oversee all of it and keep all of it moving forward and everyone in communication with one another the entire time. You kind of touched upon this, but in theater specifically, are there misconceptions that people tend to have about producers in theater and about the kind of producer you are? Totally. I mean, I think that the misconception is that producers make all the decisions by themselves in a vacuum. I think that's a general misconception. I don't think it's true of everyone. But it's it. every decision has a equal and opposite sort of like reactive decision, right? So um, mm. For example, I'm working on a piece right now and we're trying to decide, you know, our job is to really also manage the financials and think about the bigger picture in the long term and have that foresight. So when we make decisions about how many weeks we want to rehearse, you know, does that that probably means that we can't have this, the same size orchestra that these artists want or that we can't have the same size cast because you can only start to really shift a couple different things in an early process. You don't know how much designs are going to cost yet. So you want to sort of uh, put some protections around your design budget. Um, so you have to really start to think about what are, what are the sort of movable pieces and are we all going to be on the same page about doing that together? So any decision you make that affects one uh, department is going to have ramifications that affect many other departments. Yeah. So would you describe then using, I guess, maybe constitution as an example, you know, from, from concept to theater, the steps along the way, broadly speaking, uh, and just what it's really like to take a show to Broadway, because I think uh, many people, I, I can, I'm, a, I'm in a very different side of producing. So for me, it's something that I've always been curious about. And I don't, know how that sausage is made, <laughs> you know? So if you could kind of break it down uh, as easily as you can for, for my three-year-old brain. Yeah. I mean, I think like there are also so many different kinds of producers and I certainly don't have the same 
wherewithal when it comes to TV and film producing. So um, I'll use the example of like the show that I'm in control of because in Constitution, I was a co-producer, which I'm happy to sort of define the various roles yeah. of producing in theater. I would love that. I would so love that. I'll start there. Basically, when you're producing a show that has commercial ambitions and we say commercial ambitions is sort of like a shorthand for you want it to go to Broadway, but um, there are other ways a show can be quote unquote commercially viable. And ultimately what that means is when you can get a show to a commercial platform um, as a producer, that means that you get to vest in the future life of the show. Mm. Um, You can't do that at um, a non-commercial level. Mm -hmm. So that's why everyone is really trying to get a show to Broadway because that means that if you can get it to Broadway or off-Broadway or the West End, which is sort of like London's version of Broadway, um, that means that you can actually participate in the future revenue streams for licensing and touring and merchandise and cast albums and all these other and and audiovisual rights and Mm. all of that. Because the major difference that I think is really important to note between TV, film, and theater is our artists own their own content. Mm. So in the theater, there's very little work for hire. So unlike a film studio, having someone write a screenplay and then paying them a fee to own that screenplay, in the theater, we commission or option artists to control their work, but we'll never own their Interesting. work. Interesting. Really important distinction. And is that true as well, even for producers who are investors in shows? No. So, so thinking about the the, the sort of forms of, of producing, so those folks who, who make decisions, who are responsible for the actual option and um, sort of create the entity that's going to um, run the production, um, those folks are called the general partners or lead producers. We had three of them on Constitution. Um, I'm not one of them. I, I am a co-producer. Mm-hmm. So what will happen often is lead producers have so many responsibilities, obviously working with their creative team, but also their, their management team and, and the advertising, press, marketing, so many other things. And they also are responsible for all the fundraising. So because it's so expensive these days to produce theater, plays generally are between three and six million dollars and musicals really are nowadays between about 10 and 14 million dollars it's too much for three people to sort of try and do it all by themselves and and is that sorry to interrupt is that money raised to get like a season almost if you will on a a broadway or a west end um that's to get one production like i was talking about one of these startups like one entity um to Broadway, like to opening night. Got it. A season is sort of what we would talk about in nonprofit terms, which is a, mm. a sort of different sector. Um, and commercial theater and nonprofit can sort of work together, which is a little bit of what you saw when Constitution, which is a, a commercial tour, had a stop at a nonprofit theater. So they sort of had a financial arrangement. But generally, we talk about like, that money, that those millions of dollars is known as capitalization. So how much it takes to get a show to its first performance on Broadway. And then from the moment first performance happens is when you're really starting to see the revenue that then goes against the investment, right? Correct. And we and then you shift from this capitalization because you got all the way to that performance on Broadway to weekly running costs, which are Right. Pretty much the same because they're paying a lot of salaries and the same costs every week. Wow. But a co-producer is someone who a lead producer turns to and goes, listen, if you can raise like a quarter of a million dollars, they'll, they'll have different tiers. Um, mm-hmm. and, and they get to decide what those tiers are. They're not sort of standardized. Um, but they could turn to someone and say, if you can get me $250,000, which, you know, maybe you put your own, some of your own money in, or you just raise it from other people, I will give you, uh, I'll carve out a piece of my back end as a producer. So if we're successful, you will participate in that success. And depending mm. on how much you put in, like if you are able to raise a million dollars, you're going to have much better terms 
than someone who only raises a quarter of a million dollars. Yeah. And so the interest to a lead producer to do that is just to sort of take the burden maybe off their plate or if they maybe have multiple things they're working on at once is to have someone else to run point. That's exactly right. Yeah. So you're trying to sort of like mitigate like the sort of uh, financial burden on yourself by sort of bringing on these partners who, again, it's not only, yes, they get this financial um, benefit if the show's successful, which only 20% of shows are. So most folks are coming into this very realistically. Um, so in yeah. into that financial um, kicker, as we call it, they also get to have this above the title billing, which means that they're Tony Award eligible. And then they get some of the, the glamorous perks, going to opening night and getting to sort of be a part of the the production and um, getting to feel, go, going to some of these um, marketing meetings. Uh, so co-producers don't have decision-making authority, but they are integral to a show getting made um, and going to Broadway. That's so fascinating. Some shows have them, some shows don't. I mean, if, yeah. If folks are, are interested and really nerdy about the theater, you can go to playbillvault.com and they have digitized versions of all the playbills. And you'll see Hamilton didn't have any co-producers because they didn't need to. People were wanted to get into the show so badly yeah. as investors. They didn't need to give folks another perk on top of it for billing. Right, <laughs> right, right, right. That makes sense. But then to just to like back up the process, like... So where do they find those playwrights? Like who is deciding, all right, here's all, you know, especially in New York, here's all these playwrights, here's all the things that are happening, all of these talented people, here are the ones that we're going to put in all of this energy, time and money to try to get to Broadway. Yes, that's a great question. So part of that sort of is the creative producing of it, which is really having your finger on the pulse of who the artists are who are out there. Um, and, you know, there are sort of two ways that you as a producer in the theater can get involved. You can either commission, which is you ask an artist to make something for you, or you can option something an artist has already created. And then you get involved with it once, once it's already sort of in process. So the show that I've been developing, which as of this morning, it, we're talking about still keeping on track to have its um, world premiere in the fall. Uh, New York City. So that's a show that I um, had the original idea for. Uh, it's a piece about the American women's suffrage movement. Yes, I've read about this. I'm very excited. <laughs> and so that artist is um, a friend of mine. We went to school together. I had this idea many, many years ago when I was like in middle school. And then when I found myself in the producing world, I wanted to bring that idea to life. And I reached out to that artist, um, pitched her the idea for the show, and she was so game for it. So that was six years ago. Musical took a long time to make. Yeah. Not in this instance, it was a commission because I came to the artist with an idea and then commissioned her to create it. And this is a very historically based project. So we did some deep dive into just the history and research to, to become experts on the subject before really putting pen to paper. And that was something that was like an important choice we made. But we also have a director on the project who did very little of that to try and maintain perspective just from a, a storytelling place. So that she wasn't as bogged down in the history and, and what was mm. what really happened and what didn't, but rather what's going to be dramatically compelling for an audience. That's smart. The idea for this yeah. project was 2014. We actively started writing in 2016. Um, and on this musical, you know, there's so many ways to do it. There's no really um, <laughs> operationalized way to create a piece of theater, but we created a structure that focused on developing all of act one first and um, the artist who's writing the whole thing herself, book music and lyrics. Wow. Um, although that you know, doesn't have to be true. You can have yeah. various uh, collaborators on a show. So she uh, started writing by herself and would finish a draft, share it with sort of our creative team, the director, myself and my producing partner and the nonprofit partner we have. 
And then we would bring actors into the process and do an internal reading so that we could hear it and see what was landing and what wasn't and what was clear, um, what we needed to continue to work on in terms of character development. And then we'd go back to the drawing board. So we did that with act one and then act two. And then we sort of had a full first draft of the show. And now we're in the process of continuing to tinker with that as we prepare for like another process with actors that will go from just being a reading to now maybe having some other elements like possibly some costume pieces and some choreography and you start to sort of like build a show in that way. Yeah. Are there peaks and valleys essentially to this whole process since it's such a long process and are you able to handle doing other things? Are the creators also doing other things or are you living and breathing this pretty much up until when it debuts? Oh, totally. I mean, everyone's working on other projects at the same time. And you sort of juggle them based on, you know, what's what's the the next thing to go into production. So this piece has been ramping up. So now it's going to take more attention. Uh, we mm-hmm. prepare for a, a bigger rehearsal process in production. But often, you know, I have like five or six other projects on my plate. And it's a lot of yeah. um, uh, spinning multiple plates and sort of trying to prioritize the thing that's right in front of you. So perfect segue, you know, so much vies for our attention and our focus these days. How do you stay motivated and focused? I, um, I really try to uh, not go to the theater every night. Um, it's important, I think, to do to have a life outside of um, this career, especially when your career is so much um, uh self-contained in this way and you are your own business as a producer um so I try and uh I do a lot of yoga and I yes what kind of yoga do you practice I practice hot vinyasa um at moto yoga which I know has a number of studios and actually during this quarantine period they are live streaming classes on their instagram so nice looking for something great I've been to Moto here. Yeah, it's an amazing I really like studio, it. and I've I've been going there for seven years. So um, it's really a, a very important community and a very important part of my life. Mm-hmm. Um, and I I do a lot of reading. I see a lot of theater. I love to see um, theater that is obviously the stuff that's happening on Broadway, but also off and off off Broadway because you really get to see some of the artists who are coming up and eventually going to be the bigger names, if you are going to some of the smaller venues too and checking everything out. And that's an important part of my job. But um, yeah, that's sort of how I stay motivated. I I feel like I surround myself with a lot of creative people, but I also try and take some time to not always be so theater focused. Yeah. So in that, in that time when you're not so theater focused, Rachel is essentially practicing yoga She's reading. What else is she doing? What What does self-care look like for you? Since it sounds like theater producing is just as consuming as independent film producing. <laughs> it's very similar. I spend a lot of time with my friends. I'm in a friend group of a bunch of folks who I've been friends with from college yeah. who are also like extremely successful in what they do, which I, I subscribe quite a bit to the shine theory, which is the idea of like, when your friends do great, like you do great. And it's just sort of this idea that when you shine, I shine. A lot of brunches. I'm very close to my family, even though they're in another state. So I talk to them all the time. But I try and stay um, connected to a lot of people um, who also don't work in my my industry. Yeah, it's so important to have like, see the forest from the trees sometimes, you know, I think, like you said, it can get very insular. And sometimes it can almost be so myopic, because it's all you think about, read about, especially with film and television, you know, it's like, even theater, but like film and TV is a lot more accessible for people. So it's like, what most people used to decompress, that is my work. So even for me, sometimes it's hard to watch a show and not be thinking about it in the context of work in some way, shape or form. So I have to find other things to like give my brain a break. Uh, it's challenging, but, um, but, but yeah. So what would, what would you say are some of the the hardest parts, the most challenging aspects of what you do? Totally. I, I mean, I think 
one of the hardest things is people and in particular artists coming, assuming that as a, as a producer, therefore as a person, I must have all the answers to things. (laughs) And I don't think anybody does. And anyone who says they do is probably not telling the truth. Yeah. Uh, But sort of in, in acknowledging that I don't have all the answers, my job becomes trying to manage their expectations of what possible outcomes could be and making sure that they feel set up for success. Yeah. Not only, you know, the, the generative artists, but also dealing with um, uh, like our, our production team and in staying on target for our fundraising goals and everything else that needs to happen. And um, my producing partner and I, assuring one another that like, you know, we've built this trust up and if, and we try and maintain that kind of transparency with one another and also our nonprofit producing partner. Um, and that, that leadership, I think that that's a really important, um, skill to have is knowing like, you don't know exactly what's going to happen. I, I subscribe a lot to, um, Rebecca Solnit, who is this, uh, exquisite writer and um, in some ways I would say philosopher. She's written a ton of books. She sort of believes in the idea of hope and hope is not the same as optimism because optimism is the belief that things will turn out well um, and you can excuse yourself from doing anything. Um, And hope Mm. is the belief that you don't know what will happen and in that space for uncertainty is room to take action. And that is sort of how I live my life. I think it's very relevant (laughs) to this moment. where Yeah. I was just going to say, here's, there's your theme, the theme for your episode. I just found it. Yeah. I think it's all about (laughs) hope. And it's also sort of a very similar, I think, to the way that Vaclav Havel sort of lived life. And I, it's something that also I think is threaded through the, the show about the suffrage movement. It's very much um, the, the thesis of the show in some ways as well. Um, and I, I try and use that in my art making and my producing and also um, everyday living my, my life. Yeah. That's that's beautiful. I love that. I'm going to steal that, especially during this this trying time. I know. So, you know, the the name of the show is is a bit silly, but I think very poignant in that it's called Life with Kaka, which sort of speaks to my nickname, but also to the messy parts of life as it pertains to producing specifically and Nowadays, there's such a light on the highlight reel of our lives and our careers, and people can look at your Instagram or, you know, the the things that you have accomplished and think they understand the the challenges and the hurdles that you have faced to get there. So I'd love for you to speak to, you know, some of the challenges that you have faced along your path. And I'm particularly interested in how you've gotten through it, because obviously here you are, you're still crushing it, still <laughs> having the stamina to keep going. I'm sure it's it's a not an easy industry, the theater industry, um, especially with people less and less going out to see live theater, live performances of any kind. So, so yeah, like how you've pushed through and how you, you keep going and lean into that hope that you're talking about, like when things are not really aligning, you know, um, I... I have had many of many of those um, experiences earlier on in my career. They still definitely happen, you know, where I've gotten very close to finding out what else I could do with my skill set because it, it can be so consuming. Um, it's so very long winded question, but I, if you could speak to that. Yeah, of course. I mean, I think one of the, the biggest challenges um, is like the TV film industry. It's, historically been this old boys club. And um, I would say, even since I started producing a decade ago, there's been so much more um, diversity in terms of leadership. There's so many more women and um, still we, we are not, you know, as well represented in terms of people of color, which is something that I advocate for and, and want to continue to work on. But yeah. you know, I started and I was a, a young woman and I um, certainly it was challenging to be perceived as, as someone who was less than. Um, and, and not only I have to say with like older men in this industry who have held all this power, um, but also with other women mm-hmm. who um, of, of generations above us who were taught that there is only one woman really in the room and it became sort of 
competitive in that way. And that's not really the way I, I operate. I'm sort of like, a, I'm the big world of abundance person. Yes, and yes. Like, you no, know, it's not I like not less, less for you. So that was sort of a big struggle for me. Um, I felt uh, patronized a lot. And I always said, like, I can't wait to be 30, which I finally turned 30 at the end of 2019. And I was like, when I turn 30, I'll finally be taken seriously. And I had a friend turn to me and she said, you're already taken seriously and you need to stop sort of like setting the goal of that mm-hmm. pe- of <laughs> assumption that people don't take you seriously because you are a young woman in this industry. And um, I'm also queer and uh, I feel like, you know, we're certainly in a moment now where um, that uh, sort of like gender and sexual identity is is shifting in such a way. And I work in an art form where that has very gratefully never been as much of an issue for me, but I know it is for a lot of folks in other industries. Um, But trying to also, I think the challenge of finding myself and accepting myself while trying to pursue this career path um, was certainly a struggle that I, I was able to, um, sort of overcome, like as I as I grew and learned about who I am and what I want out of life. And so, the way you overcame it was just in the time and knowledge of kind of finding yourself. Yeah, I mean, I found a community. I found like I yeah. so many. Um, like I'm in like a crew with a bunch of other like queer and lesbian artists and and creators, and we support one another. Um, and I think once I realized that my own sort of fear and anxiety uh, surrounding it was not, was something I could let go of and I would be okay. I I knew I had like a safety net yeah. there to catch me. Well, that's, that's beautiful. And like, as someone who hasn't met you IRL, but is sort of observing your life unfold through the lens of social media, it does seem like you have incredibly supportive community of people around you. And um, it's, it's wonderful to see, like you said, I, I subscribe as well to the, to the idea that there's room for all of us. Um, and abundance is very much at the forefront of my MO as well. And, and really showing the younger generation coming up under us, hopefully who can take that spin it and, and go even beyond um, with that concept, you know, and, and sort of, I get that the women who've come before us have had a much harder hand that they were dealt. Um, and I think that's true. And I think like, because of everything I've either personally um, been through or observed, like the, the mentoring of the next generation and cultivating that next generation is, is, very important to me and is something that I advocate for on a daily basis. Well, thank you for doing that. I think we need more, more of us out there sprinkled throughout the world doing that because I believe that is how we create the, the sort of future of our industry that we want to see in the workforce and inclusion. And, and all of these ideas are very, very important that we, we can all operate from a place of love because that is where the best art and the best collaborations are created. And if you're instilling the opposite, I can only speak as well for like sets, you know, like I have really felt it and noticed the difference in the attitudes and even the work that is created when you are creating an environment of fear, of lack, uh, and the attitude that people bring to that, you know, it, it doesn't have to be that way. And I am I'm here to eradicate that idea as much as possible without being too woo-woo about it because I'm also a yogi. And so I I don't want to, you know, alienate anyone with these ideas. But No, but those concepts, I think, are what, you know, allow us, like, promote and engender um, us, uh, like, collaboration and compassion and empathy and all the things that are essential to creating really good art and sort of moving away from the model of scarcity, which, you know... Yeah, not to point any fingers, but obviously yes. the people who are in charge of this company really love to do, and it's, it's sort of what led to this particular moment we're in now, which in some ways is a a test to see how well we can sort of grow together. Yeah, I think that's the best way to look at it. I think there is an opportunity for for change, and this is maybe this is what it takes. You know, it's being in these dire times to really get back to what's important. I hope that that is one of the outcomes on the other side of this uh, pandemic, whenever this subsides. And people can still feel like sad and anxious. And I mean, like every single feeling right now is completely valid. But I think ultimately 
if if we want to move forward, we have to be able to believe that we can get through it. Yeah, pull ourselves up by the bootstraps and uh, find a way to keep going. You really have to remember, you know, the values that are important to you. And that has to be what lifts your spirits. Yeah. On that note, will you tell me about an experience that you've had so far in your career that you've been really proud of? Like a pinch me moment. It, it can be related to to one of the projects you've described or something that we don't know about yet? Totally. I mean, oh, well, I, one thing that feels sort of obvious is, you know, I grew up watching the Tony Awards and, and they're such an extraordinary event for the theater community. And when I was 23, I started actually working on the Tonys, which was so cool because I had like this all access pass and I, I worked on the, the talent and so my job was a lot of ensuring you know folks were where they needed to be to get on stage and I, I had the best time um, sort of running logistics and then last year I was nominated because of constant yes uh, which was so cool and and special and again like I was a co-producer so I wasn't one of like the three lead producers but as a co-producer you also get nominated and my best friend is Rachel Brosnahan yes yes she yes. said she would be my date to the Tonys and then suddenly because she was coming <laughs> we sort of got like an upgrade and um, <laughs> I ended up getting ready with her for the awards, um, which was so fun. And then we went to do the carpet. And I've been to events with her before where we've, you know, she's done the carpet and I sort of meet her at the other end and we go to the event together. But we got there and I was like sort of preparing to, to see her on the other side. And she and her publicist turned towards me and they were like, no, you're doing all the press together. Like you're, you're doing it together because you're nominated. And so it was like this really sweet moment of us sort of being on the carpet with all these other celebrities. And I got to talk about, you know, what the Constitution means to me and the show. And, and she sort of was just talking about how excited she was to be my date. And it was just a really special, definitely a pinch me moment. Um, and hopefully the first of a future many times that I will get to be on that carpet again for the Tony Awards if all goes as planned. Oh, I'm sure it will. You just said you just turned 30. You're, you're still a wee babe. You have so much more, <laughs> so much more ahead of you. Like I'm excited to be getting in early and getting to chat with you early. Who knows, maybe in 10 years, we'll do a revisit of uh, how things have unfolded since this conversation. Oh yeah, I would love that. And then you can tell me <laughs> everything you've done in 10 years. Oh my gosh, yeah. No pressure, right? <laughs> <laughs> but but no, I, that's amazing. I obviously don't know Rachel, Rachel Brosnahan, your best friend, but I have been a fan of her since her early days. I remember seeing you guys, I think on your Instagram, doing all the red carpets together. And it just filled my it filled my heart with so much like pride, even though I don't know you guys. I was just so happy. <laughs> There's just such a support and a love behind the scenes. And that's what I mean. Like, I think you can feel that. And it, it warms my heart to see people succeeding that have nothing to do with me being little little sparks of light and hope throughout our industry and doing good things. And so <laughs> and so it's awesome. And yes, there will be so much more. I can't wait. I think Suffragist is going to be something really, really special. I'm excited to watch from the sidelines and hopefully get to get to see it in New York. I'm going to put that out there to the universe. Oh, yeah. As soon as there's more info, I'll make sure that you have it. And, and yeah. just like, you know, Rachel and I have been friends since freshman year of college and she is as good of a person as you would hope her to be. Um, and she is, you know, not changed at all. I mean, she's, she is so down to earth and so um, uses her platform for so much good in the world and inspires me every day. And um, we're sort of in quarantine together. <laughs> I saw that you guys where she you were teaching her, I don't know, there was another guy like a yoga class. Is that what that was? Um, yeah. Oh, <laughs> Yeah, that was her husband, Jason. So we did a um, one of the Moto Yoga live stream classes together yesterday. 
but because Jason like really doesn't do yoga and and it's not Rachel's sort of primary form of exercise, I led the class because I know what all the moves are. Yes, and the dogs also did yoga with us. So in this time when you know I live alone and it can be pretty isolating, yeah. it's amazing to have a, a best friend who lives so close that um, we've sort of decided that we're in our isolation cell together. Yeah, I love that. And you get to help her deepen her yoga practice at this time. You know, it's awesome. <laughs> totally. Yeah, no, it's been it's been really great. And, um, and we were, um, you know, in Italy last month, actually, right before everything. Yeah, I messaged you remember because I was like, you're in Milan. Are you okay? I we, we were okay. Yeah, no, our incubation period yeah. ended and we're both fine, but it, it was scary. And obviously Italy is in a very dire situation now yeah. behind them on the timeline. Um, but, you know, thinking about I will have very fond memories of our time there, um, sort of fashion week. Yeah. Uh, and it's fun to, you know, do yeah. all of that and, and get out of the theater world and, and engage with other arts and other folks who are making amazing things. So I always love being a part of that and going to events with her. Yeah, I love that. Say It's so interesting because I've been having conversations uh, like non-corona related conversations, but even you can't really talk about anything without talking about it because no idea what's going to happen. And we're um, living in in such a strange situation that no one has any um, understanding of right now. Well, talk about, you know, moment to moment living and what an opportunity we have um, if you're not obviously panicking, hopefully, when you when you take a step back to really be present moment to moment, because this is the first time we've faced something like this and nobody truly knows what's next. Absolutely. I feel like there's no way to predict um, what will happen, except that if if we can see this through, um, it it can create, I think, spaciousness for us to actually be a more connected, um, kinder world to one another. Yeah, it's, um, I'm, I'm enjoying it so far. I'm leaning, leaning into that part of it, making the best of it. Totally. I agree. I'm trying to stay positive and throw myself into other efforts. And I love to read. I have so many books I want to catch up on. I'm like big into Goodreads. So I put together a list Actually, it's on my Instagram of like my bookshelf. For I saw, yeah. Um, be held accountable to continue reading and not, you know, in scrolling on my phone in a panic. When I post your interview, I'll also include a photo of all your books that you said you were going to read, and we can all help <laughs> you stay accountable. <laughs> oh so I do have one final question for you. I just want to be mindful because we are about the hour mark. If you did want me to mention plugs here on air since yeah. TBD, I don't. I guess I don't really know what's going on with Endlings. So I was the commercial producer on a show with a nonprofit, which for the education of it all, that's called enhancement when a commercial producer works with a nonprofit partner to quote unquote enhance their production by helping them with some additional funds. Although the commercial producer either has the rights and has assigned them to a nonprofit or the nonprofit has the rights. And then after their production, they assign those to the commercial producer. Um, So we were doing a production with the New York Theater Workshop, which is where Constitution was before it went to Broadway and where Hadestown was, um, Slave Play. It's where Rent originated. Nice. So we were doing a production of this play, which is about South Korean female divers and also about, um, you know, uh, storytelling and who gets to dictate what kinds of stories get told and by whom. So the run was very sadly canceled as so many shows were. There was someone who started this term, which I think this will be known as the lost season. When we think about like Broadway season as a whole, all the shows that are on. And all the nonprofits who do a season similar to the school year, it sort of runs September mm-hmm. to June of about four to five shows. And all the shows really, I think, through the summer are going to be canceled, um, if not postponed for a, a later date. So Endling, very sadly, is not um, running anymore. But our playwright, 
this brilliant artist named Celine Song has made the play available to anyone who wants to read it. Ooh. So we're, we are trying to ensure that that art still can be shared yeah. with, with those who who would like to experience it. I love it. Maybe if you want to send me the PDF, I can actually hyperlink to it as well. Totally. Um, I'm so happy to do that. I mean, they're, they've made it free. And the other thing I'll plug is in, in this sort of spirit of all these shows that got canceled and all these artists who are being like extraordinarily creative during this period of isolation, there's a new Instagram called Theater Without Theater, Theater R-E Without Theater E-R, which just... If folks aren't aware, they're different. Theater with an R-E is the art and theater with the E-R is the space, the venue, generally speaking. I love it. Yeah. Um, but they're posting live streams of, of artists sort of singing songs from canceled shows and other entertainment. And I'm working with a couple other artists on some different initiatives as well as um, relief efforts right now. Those are sort of my, I guess, <laughs> plugs as yeah. it were at this moment. And then, and then, you know, stay tuned for, for more information on Suffragist as it becomes public. Amazing. Amazing. Before I let you go, the last note I want to end on is what advice would you give to young artists who want to produce theater, people who look at what you've created and want to somehow, you know, mirror your career choices? Um, I think the most important thing I learned is that you don't ask for permission. And it's something that I think we're conditioned, um, particular as women to do. Um, but I, you know, when I started my career, I would sort of like politely run everything by, by others just to like check in. And, and there's a difference between like being a good collaborator and like, you know, being indecisive <laughs> and, um, you're not always going to make decisions that, um, yeah. everyone's going to be happy with, but as a producer, you know, your job is leadership and you have to make decisions and entrust your instincts and, um, and, and also balance that with being a good collaborator, but you don't have to wait for someone else to tell you that you get to be in charge. You're in charge of your own life and you're in charge of the work that you do. That is brilliant life advice, not just, <laughs> not just theater producing advice. You know, producing, advice for good producing is advice for living a good life, I think. I try and, and that's sort of my struggle I, with my own work-life balance is sometimes I'm not sure when I'm producing, like, a piece of theater and when I'm trying to like produce my life. Yes. Uh, <laughs> I struggle. I struggle with the same thing. Yeah. A lot of folks who are listening struggle with it too, because, you know, they are sort of like interchangeable in some ways and they do sort of like um, are inextricably um, interlinked. But I think that that's a major, that's a major thing that I learned and that I think is really important. And also just, you know, be kind. Yeah. <laughs> just be kind. One, even when you get to be in charge, it doesn't mean that you have to do it in a way where you are putting others down, but rather you want to create a space where everyone feels like they have something um, important to say. And, uh, you know, I'm a big best idea in the room kind of person, not, you know, the person in charge gets to decide what all the ideas are. Yeah. So uh, I think that's a really important thing. And we get to, as the producer, as a leader, sort of like set the tone mm -hmm. for how and create the ethos around which the other collaborators feel like they can participate in a process. Yeah. yeah. It's like live a life worthy of a eulogy, not of a resume. Mm. I've heard that recently. That's and really it's beautiful. somebody it's I don't I yeah, I don't even know where somebody heard it, but they told it to me and I repeat it as often as I can to anyone who will listen because I think so much when you think of producing and TV and film and probably theater as well. It's so cutthroat. It's so competitive that it can sometimes breed a certain type of attitude or personality and a misconception of what it is that you need to be to, to find success, you know, and get where you're going. And I just don't subscribe to that at all. I think I, I would like to be living proof that you can get where you're going and you can find success and do it from a place of integrity and authenticity and kindness and be a good person and help others along the way and still have a fulfilling career, thus a life since it is interchangeable. And that is 100% posi possible. It's just a choice, Absolutely. you know, that we all make. I agree with yeah. that wholeheartedly. And I think trying to be, um, be a person who is 
more of like an Eve Harrington <laughs> in that example, <laughs> you know, yeah. in this film, um, yeah. and who is trying to sort of um, uh, make decisions that only serve themselves and not sort of the the future of the industry as a whole and their projects and all the people they work with. Those people probably aren't very happy and they probably lead very small um, uh, lives. And I think that we, you know, the thing that excites me so much about our generation is that I feel we're committed to sort of growing uh, as a collective whole and not sort of valuing one person's success about an, uh, above anybody else. Yeah, I 100% agree. And I see that and I would love to be a part of helping people achieve that and believe it's possible with whatever tiny dent I can make in that, uh, in that conversation. You're doing it with this podcast already. Thanks. Yeah. I, it's been a really joyous thing to do it. Like I do everything alone, but the kinds of conversations I've gotten to have, I've gotten to meet some incredible women, especially like yourself. And it really feels like therapy for me. And a lot of the feedback I've gotten from the podcast that it is therapy for a lot of people as well, whether or not they're producers. I have friends who are art directors, set dressers, you know, therapists, school teachers, like realtors, like not even in the business, but it's, um, it's, I think a lot of these themes kind of come up for a lot of women and to use the lens of something that can seem sexy and glossy, which is producing and rubbing shoulders with famous people to talk about these things is, is truly a, a gift. And I, it's a, it's an honor to get to lead these conversations and be a conduit to these conversations with, with women like yourself and get to share it with others who can then also hopefully take that and, and, um, and sp- spread it like a good virus all over our world. <laughs> I think that's, that's beautiful. Yes, I agree. <laughs> well, if I will let you go, unless there's anything else that I forgot or that you want to mention. No, I think, I, I think that's it for the moment. I mean, we're sort of in these uncertain times, um, but I think there's light at the end of the tunnel. That's sort of the last thing I'll say on it. Yeah. I agree. Well, thank you for sharing this space and time with me and with the listeners. I'm so grateful. It's um, just such a testament for how long sometimes it takes to get these conversations uh, recorded. But I really believe they always happen when they're meant to happen. And so thank you for hanging in there with all my (laughs) email follow-ups and and making it happen. I know. It it took both of us. and, And we were committed and we made it happen. And here we are. And here we are. So thank you so much. Thank you for sharing this time with us. Um, and I'm glad we did it. Yeah. Um, and I've been safe, safe out there and um, take care of yourself and take care of everyone else too by social distancing, but not emotionally or spiritually distancing. Yes. And that's this week's episode. Thank you so much for tuning in week after week and doing this life thing with me. I see you. I recognize you. The hustle is real. Keep it up. And if you like the show, please spread the word. Tell a friend. Tag a friend. Follow me on social media. I'm at Carolina Gropa. The show's at Life with Kaka. Would love to hear what you think. Thanks again for doing this life thing with me. And I'll see you next week. Beijos.